And this morning we continue our series that we've entitled The Hall of Faith. Each and every one of us understands that in our nation, we have several museums dedicated to certain professional activities from sports to musicianship that allows an individual to be enshrined and remembered for their unique contribution to that particular profession. If we go to Canton, we're at the NFL Hall of Fame. If we go to Cooperstown, we're in the MLB Hall of Fame. If we go to Cleveland, we're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find that the Hebrew writer gives for us a list of individuals that please God due to the fact that they had faith in God. And these examples are given to us to learn from. That you and I might also walk in the same faith, that same trust, that same understanding that these individuals had in their minimal understanding of God at the times in which they lived. Pretty much, if they can do it, so can we today. These individuals are given to us again for our example and for our encouragement. And each one of them that have been inducted into this hall of faith have come there by the grace of God. And they are now enshrined for us in this chapter, and there are others, but these are the ones that the Hebrew writer was inspired to bring to our attention. And each time we come to this phrase within the uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, by faith we know that we are soon going to be introduced to a new individual. An individual that is meant to uh, once again encourage us in the time in which we live today. As much as it was to encourage those who originally read this letter after it was penned by its writer. And again, the author of the book of Hebrews, well, as one scholar said, only God knows who that is. But as we continue this morning through the Hall of Faith, we come to our third inductee. One that I'm sure is familiar to all of you, and that is the person Noah. As one stated, each one of these stand as a dynamic example to us, as a stirring challenge for us to believe God in the midst of a corrupt, godless, and dying world. In each case, we saw these individuals approached by God, spoken by God through His Word, Number two, the inner selves of these individuals were stirred in different ways. That third led them to obey God. And number four, God bore witness to each and every one of them, commemorating them here in our chapter for us to remember as examples of those who walked with faith, by faith with God. Throughout the Bible, it is clear that God desires to have a relationship with us through Jesus Christ. It's more than just ascending to a certain degree of academic facts about God. It is more than just simply uh, desiring to uh, have or carry a degree of piety within our lives towards God. God wants our heart. He wants that relationship with us. 
The commands of Christ that he outlined for us were these. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This carried on into the New Testament books as the law of love, the royal law of love, the law of Christ. It was based on a foundation of love between us and God and God and us. And the reason that we respond to God in love is because He first loved us in such a dynamic way that if looked upon objectively should melt the hardest of hearts. And that is the cross. Allowing His Son to come and to die in the fashion and the manner in which He did to allow us this relationship. As our sin had severed us from God. And to that sin then placed us in a, a spiral position descending into death. We were hopeless in every sense of the world word. And if it weren't for God and his mercy and his grace, not man reaching up to God to try to uh, once again earn and, and demand the favor of God, but God's grace coming down to us through Christ and not us reaching to God, but God reaching to us through Christ this relationship would never have been able to be reestablished. The reason I say this is because the first three inductees to the hall of faith have all been qualified by a word used in the Old Testament to describe the relationship between them and God, and that is that they walked with God. It was a relationship that carried momentum and allowed them to continue to move forward in their pursuit of God. That's what God desires with us. He wants us to walk with him day by day. He's always there and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll never abandon us. But God wants to be a, a constant in your thinking and in your heart. He wants us to know that the invisible is a reality that we can count on just as much as the visible physical world in which surrounds us. And that confidence comes on the platform of faith, allowing us to trust God by seeing his heart and his character and his nature displayed for us from Genesis to Revelation and pinnacled in the example of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to Noah this morning, we once again find an individual that was living at such a unique time in history. All the odds were against him, and yet he still walked with God. For corruption, idolatry, defilement, Sin had risen to an all-time high in the society in which he occupied, the time in which he spent here on this earth. And yet, he was still capable of walking with God, and he did so by faith. The faith of Noah involved his whole person. It involved his mind as he heeded the warning of God. It involved his heart as he was moved by fear to obey God. And it, it involved his will as he then acted upon what God instructed him to do. It involved his whole being. Again, God approaching Noah at a time 
like none other in the history of mankind. And so we begin as we look at this third inductee to the hall of faith, we look at Noah together this morning. And again, we believe that Noah was a historical figure. We believe that there was a worldwide flood that destroyed all flesh except that which was carried within the ark. And we believe the ark has been found. It's in Kentucky. And this July, we're going to see it. So you might want to hop on board on that trip. You didn't know they had big screen TVs in the ark. I'll tell you, they did. It was a reality. And therefore, since this event has been recorded not only in the history of the Bible, but many cultures around the world speak of a global flood taking place within their legends of history. It's something that the world faced. And today we are promised by the rainbow each and every time we see it that God will no longer judge the earth by a flood. Last night I was up, and if you were up late last night, maybe you saw it too, we had a storm move through here so quickly. The rain was unbelievable. It seemed like it was coming from every single direction. And if it weren't for a rainbow, I'd be a little bit worried, and I'd be building that ark myself today, I think, based upon what I saw last night. But we don't have to be concerned about God judging the world in that fashion once again. However, though, the Bible clearly teaches that God will deal with the earth once again, but this time in a sense of permanency, where it'll lead to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth that we will enjoy as believers and followers in Jesus Christ. A new heaven and a new earth that has never been touched by sin or death or the effects thereof. Beautiful place. But as we begin with Noah, let us start in chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he uh, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This would be the plaque that we would see or read next to the display or the exhibit there in the Hall of Faith. But as I had mentioned to you earlier in our study, we also need to go back into the history of the Old Testament to once again remind us of all the events that took place at that time that led Noah to this place, that allowed for this moment in time where God approached Noah and required of him and warned him of what was yet to come, even though what was yet to come was still 120 years away, Noah took it to heart. And moved by a godly reverence, he then began to build the ark in which God required him to build. Let us go back into the book of Genesis, if you will, Genesis chapter 6. And let's take a look as we ramp up to understand the times in which Noah lived. They are times that are very similar to times that I believe we are getting closer and facing currently today. In 
In chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Genesis, hopefully you're there with us this morning. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. At this point, the earth is beginning to populate. We are in a period of time called the Antediluvian period. Please don't ask me how to spell that. It is a time before the flood, and the world became quite populated at that time. Dr. Henry Morris did some phenomenal work in a book called The Genesis Record. I'd strongly encourage you to look for a copy for your personal library. And he estimates now that the world probably already contained about 5 billion people. And so this was significant to the time in which they lived. And he gives the mathematical uh, equations based upon the years that the individuals lived in that environment and the number of children and so forth to substantiate that population. And something happened as the men and women were having children, daughters specifically, that they became very attractive to a certain group of individuals that the Bible calls the sons of God. Now some believe this to be the godly line of Seth intermingling with the ungodly line of Cain and therefore um, being disobedient to God's commands in uh, continuing the righteousness uh, through his instruction. However, though, from these individuals, there were very interesting children born. They were called Nephilims. I personally believe that this was something that Peter spoke about, where the sons of God referred to angels that took human form and had relations with women at that time, had children, which were then the Nephilim that were born, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And as a result, their attempt was to try to pollute the bloodline in which Christ would eventually come through. Now you're saying, wow, I didn't expect this this morning from our Bible study. Well, again, we're not going to dumb it down for you. We're going to give you it as God has given it to us. And as a result, God sees it necessary to judge and to wipe out all flesh due to this intermingling between the sons of God and the females of man. And so he immediately, in verse 3, says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, meaning this is going to come to an end. There's going to be a totality, a finish to it all. In 120 years, flesh will be destroyed that is here on the earth. That's what he is saying here. It's a decree of judgment against what is transpiring here on planet earth. But then we go on in verse 4. Now, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in, and of course, that is a very eloquent way of saying having intimate relationships with the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw, verse 5, 
the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not only did we have this integration of these fallen angels into the bloodline of man, but apparently man had now come to a point in time which seems to indicate God seeing the heart and the mind of man, knowing their intentions, knowing their thoughts, and saying everything that they consider is evil. Their plans, that's what the word intention means there in the Hebrew, all their plans are evil. They're wicked. And he's going to deal with them. Now, let me challenge you a little bit this morning. From God's perspective, he sees the hearts and the minds of men and sees that only evil is continually in their thoughts and in their hearts. But what does that look like from our perspective? Now, when people talk about the end of the world, they immediately go into their um, mind's eye and begin to depict for themselves uh, something that they may see like in an apocalyptic movie after a nuclear exchange has taken place and it's nothing but barren wasteland with people walking with staffs from one place to another and then a guy named Mad Max comes around and, uh, and so forth. And, and that's what it's going to look like. When the end of the world is about to take place, it's going to look like something that we've seen depicted for us many times in these Hollywood movies. Or cities are going to be so overgrown that the whole planet is just one big city and there's filth flying around everywhere and there's decay and desitance all over and individuals are just scurrying to and from and there's no value of life any longer uh, in the depicted uh, arena of that particular time. Is that what the end times will look like? Well, it's interesting because Jesus tells us He tells us in Matthew chapter 25, which we'll look at in a little while. We don't have to turn there yet. But from our perspective, Jesus says that it will be like the days of Noah right before my return. And then he goes on to depict those days for us. They'll be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Meaning, it was a phrase used in that culture, in the Roman culture at that time, is they're going to go on carelessly in life. Like, there's no cares, there's no worries, there's going to be prosperity, there's going to be, um, there's going to be fortune, there's going to be wealth, there's going to be a huge attraction to secular humanism. Meaning that life is going about without the interactions and the intercedings of God, and I have no real requirement for Him. There'd be an indifference in the hearts and the minds of the people. That's what we should be looking for. Not the apocalyptic picture that these Hollywood movies present us. But when God becomes indifferent to the society is when we should become worried or concerned about his return. (laughs) Well, we should be. Because we see a growing indifference here in the United States of America that is absolutely shocking if you consider the fact that we're only 200 some years old as a nation. We started with forefathers who integrated God in their thinking and in the documents in which they wrote from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution. 
And today we are trying to move God out of every public arena within our society. We are educating our children through our public educational system to believe that if they consider God a reality, it is going to hinder their intellectual pursuits in education. There's a growing indifference where marriage and giving in marriage, people get divorced so often today. In fact, in Las Vegas, they just installed a kiosk at the airport to allow you to divorce before you leave. You know, you arrive, you hit some of the casinos, you get a little, uh, you know, cranked at the bar, you meet someone, you go to the Elvis Chapel, you get married, you leave and say, you know what, I really didn't want to do that. Can I annul this before I leave? And now there's a kiosk at the airport to allow you to do such a thing. The reason I say this to you is because, listen, this indifference seems to be indicative of what God saw as Verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Paul wrote in Second, uh, Timothy, third, uh, 1 Timothy about the conditions of the last days. And when you begin to read those, you see a consistency in what Jesus said, what's happening here at Noah's time, and what's happening here in our culture today. I'm not waiting for some apocalyptic event to take place. I'm seeing an indifference towards God like never before, even within the church. People are turning away because you know what? It's not popular to be a Christian anymore, is it? People are losing their jobs when they stand up for Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian ethics today. CEOs are having to step down. When the Christian church said that we oppose gay marriage, how did they react? Oh, we understand. Your opinion is so important to us because we're so tolerant. And you know what? We shouldn't at all infringe upon your religious freedoms. Is that what happened? No. That a baker has to stand before our Supreme Court to try to keep the religious freedoms in which he was given and entrusted by the Constitution. Our world has changed, hasn't it? And that's the way the Lord gives us this insight. Now look at what he says in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, oh, these, these three-letter words in the Bible, the smallest words sometimes have the greatest impact. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you think the culture was already working against Noah as he tried to walk in righteousness with God in the wake and in the overbearing of the corruption of that particular culture and society at that time, certainly. And now God was going to tap Noah on the shoulder. And I, I can't help but, you know, consider, you know, the, the immense responsibility that was laid on Noah's shoulders at that moment. Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to judge the world by a flood 
And that ark is going to save you, your family, and the animals that will be carried within it through the judgment that I will pour on this earth. And I will make a covenant with you, a promise to you that I will see you through this judgment and you will be an heir of righteousness and allow the creation to start once again, the world to be populated once again. And in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And look what he, the writer of uh, Moses says about him. Noah walked with God. There's that relationship aspect that he, Noah had. And in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Do we see a rise in violence in our culture today? Isn't it amazing, the rise of violence? And yet, we still believe that we are intellectually uh, progressing to an evolutionary uh, position where we will now become superior than our flesh itself. There's a whole article I, I just read on this whole situation. But that being said, we still believe that there's an evolutionary process that are bringing us uh, closer to that utopian understanding of life that, that an individual may carry. And yet, everything around us is getting worse. It's a total oxymoron to this whole progression. And so, as a result, Noah now stands out like a light in the darkness. As the violence continues, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, defiled, For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. And make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark on it in its side, and make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which, is, in which breath of life under heaven Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you, and everything living of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into with you to keep them alive. So also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve you as food for you and for them. And look at verse 22. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I read verse 22 and I'm, I'm just amazed. First, all of a sudden, God has appeared to me out of nowhere He's told me that he's going to bring all life to a complete end by a flood. And then he tells me to make this thing called an ark. Really? Oh, okay, I'm supposed to make it out of gopher wood. That helps me. 
It's supposed to be 300 cubits. That helps me even less. It's supposed to be 50 cubits wide. That helps me even less because, again, the dimensions of this thing is enormous. And then I'm supposed to bring my sons and their wives and my wife into it. Oh, and all these animals. And even some food because if I get hungry in the ark, I'm going to start eating the animals that I brought to save. And what does Noah say at the end of it all? Okay, God. Now, don't you think for a minute, I mean, if this was me, I'd be like, wait, hold on a second. What's an ark? Number two, um, a flood. We're not even near water. We've never seen it rain most probably up to this point in time. And now you say you're going to bring a flood upon this whole entire area, and I'm supposed to build an ark of this size. But the Bible tells us in chapter 11, verse 7, that he was moved with reverent fear. Undoubtedly, now we are given insight into the manner in which he received this. This was overwhelming to him. This responsibility was daunting to him. But because of this reverence that he had for God and the awe that he had for standing in the wake of this warning in which God has given him, taking heed lest one fall under the judgment of God, he moves diligently to take God at his word and immediately begins to act upon what God says. And even though the nearest body of water was hundreds of miles away, and they've never seen water accumulate in this fashion before at this particular time, he was moved to go ahead and begin to assemble this ark by hand. 510 feet long this ark was, the distance of one and a half football fields, and you could land three space shuttles on the deck of the ark. The ark was as tall as a four-story home is today. And concerning its capacity to carry things, understand that the storage capacity of the ark was the same as 450 semi-trailers, ones like you see out here in our parking lot. And the average semi-trailer can carry 250 sheep, but the ark in its size, 120,000 sheep. And Noah said, okay, I'll do it. And believed God and allowed this fear to move his heart after being spoken this warning by God, taking it at face value that God is going to do what God says he is going to do, and I must therefore act accordingly. And therefore bringing his will under the subjection of his heart and in his mind, and allowing this ark to be built in such a fashion for the next 120 years, and the moment he finished it and gathered the animals and his families, the rain began just as God said it would. Noah's life was a life depicted in a manner that was countercultural to the society of that time. Everybody was going about their business thinking that one day was the same as the next day and next year will be just like this year and the year will continue after year and, and it'll never change and nothing will ever come to ruin. But then there is this guy 
Can you imagine being a neighbor of Noah? Noah, what are you doing? Build an ark. What's an ark? What I'm building. Why are you building it? There's a flood coming. What's a flood? I don't know, but it's coming. I mean, think about these dialogues. And he day in and day out, hammering away, pounding away, sawing away, creating this ark into these dimensions, and he got it done in 120 years as God waited. Now, we have no record of God approaching Noah during this point. You got it. Keep going. That looks awesome. Let's put a sail on that thing. Couple boaters in the back. Get the water skis. Noah persisted day in and day out, living counterculturally to everything that was around him. Everything around him would have screamed to him, hey, things are going on as they always have, Noah. Nothing's changing. There are no consequences to our actions. There's no accountability that we need to be concerned about. Why are you making this ark? It's so improbable. It's ridiculous. Because God said so. And God's going to bring about that which God has stated that he is going to bring about. And not my life alone is involved here, but my family's life. And the life of the animals in which God wants to save through this ark are I'm responsible for, and I'm going to finish the work that he set before me because he is able to perform what he has promised and he's going to do it. That's the confidence in which he carried. The reality of verse 7 is that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Noah lived in expectation of an unseen world that had not yet unfolded upon this earth. And when you and I go through our days, each and every day, anticipating and waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, the world thinks we're crazy, don't they? And what do they say? Hey, things are going on just like they always have. There are no consequences or accountability. So live life now to its fullest because this is all that there is. Is that true? No way. For me as a Christian, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. But for the individual apart from Christ, this world is the best it's going to get. So they better enjoy it now. So if they don't enjoy it now, they're never going to enjoy it in the future. And Noah lived with this kind of certainty. His action was motivated by faith, one writer wrote, not by any reasoned calculation of the probabilities based on the best evidences of that moment, but solely because of his faith. And Noah's faith led to the preservation, preservation, excuse me, of his family. Likewise, as we continue to trust God, we will encourage others to do so also. And they also will enter into their inheritance if they follow the example of our faithful perseverance. It's not only us, it's our family. People are watching us. Our families are watching us. And the moment we say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we are then committed to live counterculturally, aren't we? And the moment we live counterculturally is the moment that we invite criticism from the fallen world. But that countercultural living can get the attention of those also that may be seeking after God. 
And it is that that we want to inspire. As many of you know, I was the first in my family to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ at 16 years old. And as God began to move me and, and he began to use me in different ministries, I was always concerned about my family's salvation, my mom, my dad, my sisters. And growing up in a difficult home where alcoholism was present from morning to night constantly, the last of my family that I ever thought would come to saving faith would be my mom, who struggled so dearly with drinking. And yet in 2014, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And after 53 years of drinking, she never drank another drop after that, after receiving Christ. And she said to Dean and I that when I looked at your marriage, when I looked at the way you and Eric love each other and your devotion to God, She had always thought that she was a religious person and that her good works would one day uh, allow her to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but then she saw that that was an impossibility and that only through Christ could she inherit eternal life. And she said that when Eric first became a believer, I just thought it was another fad in which he was embarking upon. I thought it was a cult that he was going to be drinking the Kool-Aid next. But then he continued to go on and on and on and on. And then when he told us that God was leading him to become a pastor, we knew that he had fallen off the cliff. And then my dad one day came and he said to me, after hearing one of our sermons, he said, I always was hoping that you would become a teacher, but you became a teacher in such a dynamic way, so differently than I ever expected. And my mom went home to be with the Lord last year. And this Monday, I was with my dad, and my dad once again told me that he is now reading through the Bible for the eighth time. You can be a witness to your family living a countercultural life. Do what God has asked you to do. You're not going to do it perfectly. We rely on the grace of God. And when we make mistakes, own up to those mistakes. Take ownership and responsibility for them. The world will appreciate an authenticity that says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But year after year, day after day, it will make a difference in a person's life to allow you then to speak into their life with credibility. They know that you're real and authentic and therefore they will listen to what you are having to say. Because each and every day that Noah got up and he began to build that ark, every board in which he cut, every nail in which he hammered, everything that he did day by day by day, the world was given a witness that salvation was possible through God and God alone by faith. And it became a condemnation to the world. The world became convicted due to this. And as a result, the world perished for their lack of response to the witness in which God has given him. And he concludes by saying this, that afterwards, if we go back to Hebrews 11 together, in chapter 7, and by faith Noah being warned by God, Concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. And that ark was a witness and a condemnation for those who were witnessing. I'm sorry, watching. 
for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When we sinned and fell before God, it wasn't only our sin that had to be accounted for and paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. A righteousness needed to be given to us also at that time if we were going to stand justified before God. That's a theological term we've talked about, justified before God. An individual is justified by Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, past, present, and future, but also because it's Christ's righteousness that robes us at that moment that we then stand before God the Father, not in and of ourselves, but in the forgiveness and the perfection of Jesus Christ. So God the Father, through Christ, sees us as perfect, Now, practically, we know we're not there yet, right? We're still a work in progress. And God's working overtime on some of us. But that being said, His grace has already given us and robed us with the perfection of Jesus Christ, His righteousness, that's the imputation of righteousness upon us, that we therefore can stand perfect before God the Father and have that relationship with Him. And so then practically, we are in a process called sanctification, another theological term that says God's bringing us out of the world and conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the work that He's doing in us. And because Noah believed God, that righteousness was given to Noah. And it's the first time that righteousness is used in the Old Testament, found here in Genesis 6-9. As one wrote, he says, In the Bible, Noah was the first man to be called righteous. He was right with God because he took God at his word. He believed what God had said and acted on it. We are not saved by our works. Our works demonstrate that we are saved. Now, I think the writer of Hebrews included Noah for the purpose of minority. The Jewish people who had been reading this in the first century would have certainly been the minority demographic within the society. What separated the Jewish Christians from the rest of the world really was their theology. What was unique to the Jewish Christian, which this book is written to, is that they held to what's called a monotheistic understanding of God, that there was one God. And they lived in a society, especially there in the Roman Empire, that polarity was absolutely accepted. There was a a tolerance to a multiplicity of different gods. And in fact, saying that there was only one God put the Christian in great jeopardy and danger because Caesar considered himself a God. And they needed to embrace that and worship him as such, which the Jewish Christians were unwilling to do. So they found themselves in a complete minority within their society and yet the writers of Hebrews is saying listen there were even less of you back in the day of Noah in fact there was him and his family and what did he do even though Noah was such a small minority amongst them all he walked with God it shows me that 
our society doesn't necessarily have to have any impact or hindering of my walking in my relationship with God. In fact, as a society grows darker, it should cause me to run to God even faster. And I believe that's why he wrote this to them. Let's wrap this up by turning, I'm sorry, to Matthew 24. I told you 25. You should have caught me on that and corrected me. It is Matthew 24 and verse 36. As the disciples knew that Jesus was getting ready to leave them, they became very concerned, fearful. For they knew that their faith now had to stand on its own apart from the presence of Jesus Christ. And so the immediate question was, after their realization of his departure is, of course, when are you coming back? What can we expect? What can we look for to help us understand the signs of the times in which we live? Now, this was something that Jesus commissioned them to do. He, in fact, rebuked the religious leaders for not understanding the signs of the times of his first coming. There were 338 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first coming. They missed them. There are over 600 concerning his second. These are prophecies that are given to us to encourage us that Jesus Christ is going to return. Because the picture that they paint are things are going to get more difficult. They're not going to get better as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to become more technologically advanced. That's not going to mean that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we're not going to have great scientific breakthroughs. But what's going to happen is that you're going to see this continued indifference towards God that we perceive as people going on in their daily life without any care or regard to God whatsoever. They're just occupied in their own personal world and their own personal space. God has no bearing upon their heart, mind, or conscience. And so as we get closer, he spoke these words to his disciples. He says, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. We don't know when this is going to take place. Not even the angels do of heaven, nor the Son. He at that moment did not know. But the Father only. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, carrying on as always, marrying and, marry, uh, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. Two women will be at the grindstone, one at the mill, and the other one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. How would God have us to live in these last days? 
For I believe that we are certainly 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. The day is around us, accompanied by the Middle East activity, the repopulation of the nation of Israel by Jewish individuals, and Israel being a nation once again, are all things that are spoken about in the Bible that must happen before the end, before the return of Jesus Christ. It's not just one thing that we are looking at anymore. It's a, it's a myriad of different events taking place all at the same time, coming into this convergence to allow us that we are getting really close to the return of Jesus Christ. Including this indifference that the individuals of Noah were carried about within concerning God, that God interpreted as being every intention of their heart was directed towards evil continually. We must live as Noah did, in a countercultural fashion. We must live with a godly fear and reverence of our Heavenly Father. We must stand in the awe of Him and His warning of His coming. By taking heed lest we fall under His judgment and by diligently taking a hold of Him through His Word. By immediately acting upon what He has said and obeying it. This is how God would have us to live in these last days. Why? Because people are watching, aren't they? Just like Noah had people watching, people are watching you. And they're looking for an answer. The other day on Facebook, I was amazed to find how many individuals posted, I believe it was either Monday or Tuesday of this week, how many individuals posted that they were hopeless, that they were in despair and depressed and they were looking for some kind of encouragement that they weren't finding elsewhere. It's so sad to me that the individual apart from Christ has to turn to Facebook for their encouragement. That evening I opened the word and I was found in Psalm 119 and David says that when I was down I went to your word. When I was depressed, I went to your word. When I was overwhelmed, I went to your word. When I was uh, feeling anxious, I went to your word. When I was feeling alone, I went to your word and I was comforted and I was met each and every time through your word. You were there for me. As this world continues to live in a secular manner, hoping that science and technology will offer them an answer to the growing question that is the growing question of eternal life. Please understand that we are on the precipice of a new technology that this world has really never seen before. As many of you know, I came out of the computer business industry before I became a pastor. And I will tell you what you are seeing is the beginning as I, in the 90s, were back with individuals who were creating what was called TCPIP. Now, you have no, maybe no idea what that is, but this was the foundations for what you now know as the cloud. Do you access the cloud? Do you use the cloud? I saw its inception back in the 90s. Have you heard of AI? It's coming. And it's going to be much more advanced than simply shutting your garage door, turning on your lights, or getting you a cold glass of water out of the refrigerator. There are scientists that are currently working right now to be able 
to encapsulate the conscience of an individual, to store it electronically and to be able to download it into a new biological product, as they say. Why would they want to do that? Eternal life. They will continue to pursue these things, but we have this eternal life in Jesus Christ and that's the only place we'll ever find it. And I hope that right before they discover that or make that possible, he returns. <laughs> in fact, interesting thing, if you're familiar with a story called Dracula that came out in the, of course, centuries ago, the whole premise was eternal life by what? Blood. Isn't that interesting? See the correlation? Eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. This is the pursuit of man. And what was the original lie in the garden from the very beginning? That you too can be like God. Eternal. Not finite, not temporary, but eternal. Please watch and take me, uh, uh, take me to task. Look for yourself and watch how technology develops and what they're trying to do. Remember they thought maybe one day that they would clone a sheep? Have we done that? Is it possible now that we can clone other biological products and maybe insert the conscience of an individual back into it? Think about it for a moment. You think I'm just talking about X-Files. Think about it. But it's man's attempts to do what Christ has already given us through him, that eternal life. And by faith, I'll read this again. By faith, Noah being warned by God as we have been warned of his second coming and his return, warned by God concerning events that he had not yet seen but knew were coming. That's what the emphasis is. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark. In reverent fear, we should conduct our lives in a countercultural manner for the saving of our household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which that comes only by faith.